You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Luke 10, 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the word of our Lord. This is uh, this passage uh, actually begins a lengthy missionary endeavor that includes primarily uh, regions between Capernaum and Galilee and Jerusalem, and so in between are Samaria and Gilead. And this part of the world in the first century was actually extremely diverse. People with various ethnic backgrounds would be in Samaria and areas close to Jerusalem, to be sure. Uh, But Jews and Gentiles from all walks of life, all socioeconomic levels, would be represented in this new region of Jesus' ministry endeavor. And today we'll be uh, looking at just the first half of this mission led by 72 new disciples. And next week we'll look at the close of the mission. But note that what we ought to expect to see here is a foreshadow, a foreshadow of the great reclaiming of the nations of the world, which Jesus calls here a field awaiting harvest. By what means is this harvest performed? We're told that God's means of reclaiming His world is the gospel. I think that's what the entire passage is about. God's means of reclaiming His world is the gospel. And we want to look at Jesus' love for the harvest itself. That's where we will begin, His love for the world of nations. But we also want to consider His love for the laborers who are sent out into the harvest, and that's what we'll look at second. And then finally, our passage ends with this grievous lament for those who do not receive the message of His labors. And we want to ask the question, why the lament? Why the lament at the end? First, the love that Jesus has for the harvest in the first couple of verses. 
You know, Jesus sees the world in a very different way than most of us do. When Jesus looks at the world, He sees a field with ripe grain waving in the wind, waiting to be harvested. And to this day, on any farm in the world, harvest represents a wonderful season. Looking at a ripe field, the farmer would see intense work, but also the farmer would see the light at the end of the tunnel. Anticipation of celebration and thanks and profit. And to address this harvest, verse 1 tells us that Jesus appoints 72 others. Now, it appears that these others are not the original 12 disciples. This means that Jesus deliberately counts out 72 individuals and He he appoints them. Uh, Likely, that appointing would include knowing them by name. The disciples have already learned that they have to share ministry. Remember in verse 49 that they saw someone who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. But now, with the addition of 72, Jesus obviously intends for the disciples to willingly accept the ministry of the gospel by others. There is no single congregation that has ownership of the gospel of Jesus. It is His gospel. But why 72 others? If there was a theological reason for choosing 12 disciples, which I believe there was, it seems there must be some kind of theological reason for choosing 72. In appointing the 12, Jesus is reconstructing the 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. His 12 disciples show that He is the intended center of Israel. And in appointing the 72, with all numerology and symbology aside, which I find to be mostly unhelpful, It would seem Jesus is refashioning the nations of the world who ought to find Him as their center. Let me tell you what I mean by this. In Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, immediately after the flood, the Old Testament describes the various clans that came from Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This chapter is often called the Table of Nations. And in the Greek language version of the Old Testament, that that Bible of that Old Testament that the disciples would have most likely used, the entire post-flood world consisted of 72 separate families or clans or nations. You can read that in Genesis chapter 10, the table of the nations. And so when Jesus appoints 72 then, He is foreshadowing the message of the gospel going forth into the entire world, a scattered people who will be gathered together into His church. And what should really occupy our imagination is perhaps not the number 72, but the fact that Jesus is able to find so many laborers. Just look backwards in your text to Luke, uh, or to Luke 9, verses 57 to 62. Jesus says to potential followers that if you follow me, you won't have a place to lay your head. He says that if you follow me, you'll have to set aside things that are actually very important to you. And he says, if you follow me, you'll never be allowed to look back at the things that you left behind you. This is the very opposite of salesmanship. It sounds like Jesus is trying to shrink the kingdom of God by turning away followers in Luke 9, 57 through 62. But here, almost miraculously, there are 72 whom Jesus recognizes and appoints. Let me step back from this to ask you to consider something. In Genesis 10, we are given a glimpse of the nations that fill the earth after the flood. 
But in Genesis 11, we are shown a picture of how those nations actually live. How do those nations in Genesis 10 live? Genesis 11 explains it to us. And in Genesis 11:4, it seems that a few of them congregate together to draft this great plan. And they begin to evangelize their plan by saying, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, that's Genesis chapter 11. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that this vast project of making a name for oneself is very much the central focus of humankind to this day. But Jesus, as He looks out at the world of people busily making a name for themselves, He sees a field of harvest. With farmer's eyes, He anticipates the collection of not just an ordinary harvest, but what He calls a plentiful harvest. And what is the means for this harvest to be collected? Or what serves as the blade of the harvester to cut this ripe grain? Well, there are three things. First, it is the presence of the laborers who labor that is the means by which this gospel is taken in. Men and women willing to go into the nations which are populated with people busily, passionately seeking to build a name for themselves. The people of the nations will make a name for themselves at all costs, but Jesus' laborers are willing to enter these domains at great personal cost, as we shall see. The, the second means by which the harvest is collected, moving on from the laborers themselves, is prayerful people who make it a part of their devotional lives to not only pray for laborers, but to be laborers themselves. These are laborers who labor and who pray for more laborers. Indeed, they pray earnestly. Would you please look at verse 2? I want you to ask yourself this question. To whom does Jesus say, pray earnestly? To whom does Jesus say, pray earnestly? Who is commanded to pray? I believe as we read that passage, we see that it's actually the twelve disciples whom Jesus is speaking to, men who themselves are called to be laborers, now being called to pray for more laborers. What is the means by which this uh, uh, harvest is taken in? It is the presence of laborers who labor, but it's also the presence of laborers who pray for more laborers. But then here's the third means by which the field is harvested. First is laborers who labor among the nations. Second is laborers who pray for more laborers. And third is the very message of the Gospel itself. It is clear that the laborers are sent two by two in a legal capacity. They're not laboring to tell their own story. If they were laboring to tell their own story, they would only need the testimony of one themselves. It's the story of another man that they are sharing. A story that is very likely to be doubted, that's very likely to be challenged. And as such, it must be accompanied by a dual testimony to stand up in Jewish court. A testimony of two. It is the gospel of one man that they bring to bear on this harvest. And in this passage, Jesus optimistically stares out into a world of people interested in their own name above all other names, and He gives that world prayerful laborers with a gospel message, and He anticipates a rich harvest. You know, we should look into our own world, not despondently, as is so easy for us to do as a church. But it would seem as though Jesus is looking out into the world in a different way than despondency. Perhaps we ought to consider looking out into the world for gospel opportunities, opportunities for the gospel to come to bear on the hearts of the world. Now, if this is His love for the harvest, this is Jesus' love for the harvest, 
What is his love for the laborers that are sent into that harvest? And we need to deduce his affection through the hardships that they're promised. You see, Jesus commands the 72 laborers to go, but as they go, they need to know four things according to Jesus' command. The first is this. They have to know that they go into danger. Jesus says that wherever they go in either Jewish or Gentile villages, they are lambs going into the home of their enemy. Jesus doesn't say that they'll be devoured, thankfully, but that they will function counterinstinctively. The laborers actually go deep into enemy territory, exactly the places that they would rather not visit, with exactly the message that they would rather not proclaim. They are, in effect, taunting enemies that are bigger and stronger than themselves, going into their fold with a message that belongs to someone else, that belongs to Jesus. And it sounds like foolishness. Like foolishness. As the 72 laborers go, Jesus says that they go into danger. That's the first thing. The second thing Jesus wants to make sure they understand is not only do they go into danger, but they also go with vulnerability. Vulnerability. There is nothing to commend them as being special or notable or worthy. Jesus won't allow it. They're disciples, but they don't have the flashiness of being disciples of a well-known rabbi. To not have a money bag or a knapsack or or sandals is to be unmarked, is to be invisible. The, The kind of person who is easily forgotten. They don't have anything that a person in that world would call armor. They don't have wealth. They don't have reputation. They don't have status that can give them a leg up on the community to which they go. They are vulnerable, and Jesus guarantees it. The third thing is this. They go, but they go with urgency. Look at verse 4. To be told in verse 4 to greet no one on the road is to be told no small talk. No small talk. You have one message and one message only. The message is given the name peace in verse 5. And in the Hebrew mindset, this would be, may the shalom of God be with you. May the shalom of God be with you. And in Jesus' understanding, this is actually shorthand for the gospel. The gospel in which someone does indeed have the shalom of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And this message is so urgent that if anyone is willing to receive this message, the laborers are to accept any hospitality however it comes. Any hospitality however it comes. There's no time to be picky about the details. Their task is too urgent for that. Their task is so urgent that the laborers are to stay in that one house trusting that one hospitality, but also making sure that the message is understood by the entire house. And... When they're done there, they don't move to another house. The message is too urgent. They move to another village altogether. There is urgency about that message, and they leave that house and go to a completely different village. There's danger, there's vulnerability, there's urgency as Jesus sends them out. But they also are commanded to go out with boldness. Think about this. Just imagine what a huge amount of boldness is required to enter villages filled with wolves. And that would indeed require a great deal of boldness. However, even greater boldness than this is required in verses 10 and 11. 
If there's not a single house that will receive the peace of God offered in the gospel, the two laborers are to go into the street, the main thoroughfare of the city, and they proclaim publicly the message that they tried to proclaim privately house to house. They make known the certain truth of the gospel. It's immediacy. It's unchangeable nature. That regardless of your disbelief, they are saying to the masses, you may hate the story of God's peace, but that story advances without you. And you will one day come to see that we were right. What does this harvest labor mean for us today? If nothing else, if nothing else, it means that gospel proclamation is always dangerous, vulnerable, urgent, and requires boldness. If nothing else, even a child could look at this passage and understand that that is what harvest labor means for us today. When Jesus commanded the 72 to approach this labor in this way, He assured His love for the laborers by comforting, comforting them amidst danger, by clothing their, clothing their vulnerability, by focusing their distractedness, and by inflating their courage. How do I know that? How should you know that? If you skip forward in this passage and look at verse 17, we'll talk next week about the laborers returning to Jesus filled with joy. They're filled with joy. How is it that they can go amidst danger? How is it that they could go with complete vulnerability to go with urgency, with focus on a single message, and that they could do all of this with boldness. They come back in joy. Jesus shows His love by being with them in the hardship of gospel proclamation. Without Christ, every man, every woman, every child will utterly devote themselves to making a name for themselves. Having been made by God to worship, they will become a religion unto themselves, curved in on themselves, utterly devoted to their own name. And in this regard, they are angry wolves to Jesus, whether they know it or not. For He is the one who insists that His name is above every other name, even the name of self. In their mind, He is the great usurper, the leader of the mutiny of their own religion. And as Christians, we stand before the world to unfold this message, to tell them that. And we do so with vulnerability. We have checked our wealth at the door. Our reputation and status, they have been checked at the door. We have checked our coolness at the door. We have checked our seminary degrees at the door. We have checked all of our trophies at the door that we might be vulnerable sharers of the gospel. And we enter the world with a focus on one message, trying to turn our conversations to any ear that will listen, and we have but one thing to say. Peace with God, true peace, has come to the world and is here even now. A peace that is freely offered in the real person of Jesus Christ who died for your sins and lives now as your own righteousness. Turn from the name of self and receive the name of Jesus. Now, as the 72 are sent out, it seems as though Jesus offers commentary on the mission. That is, while the laborers go into their labor, Jesus continues to speak in verse 13 and 
I'm of the opinion that the twelve disciples actually sit this ministry out. Matthew's Gospel is rather unclear on this. But as the 72 go forth, Jesus comments to the twelve disciples on three cities that represent cities they have already visited together and not necessarily a part of the mission of the 72 as they go out. And so reflecting back, Jesus says that Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are precisely those kinds of cities that will reject laborer after laborer after laborer. The peace of God through Him will be offered repeatedly, but they will not listen. Jesus is looking backwards to places in which He and the disciples have already held forth the Gospel. And this this is Jesus' commentary on the world into which the 72 laborers have just been sent. Jesus views the world as a field awaiting harvest, but it is apparently the strangest field ever seen. It's not the kind of field that farmers necessarily dream of, uh, the one where every head of grain is ripe and ready for harvest. This field's different, isn't it? Some of the grains are ripe and ready for harvest, but some, for a variety of reasons perhaps, are not. Some have not ripened yet. And not only this, Jesus' comments about Capernaum uh, show that at least some of the grains will never ripen and they'll never be harvested. The world is a field ready for harvest, but it's some kind of a sick field, a field with a hardening disease in it that prevents many plants from ever reaching the point of harvest. Perhaps it's some kind of internal disease like the sin of a hardened conscience, the sin against the Spirit in which the heart has hardened itself to any presentation of the Gospel. Perhaps it's the cares of the world that nag and stifle and harass belief in the Gospel to such a point that it seems no longer feasible that one can cast themselves into the waiting arms of the Gospel. Or perhaps it's the wiles of the evil one who hates to see even one shoot from that field ripen in faith of the Gospel. Let me be very clear about something, and that is this, that our passage tells us only two ways in which we can recognize what kind of vegetation we're dealing with. Only two ways. Only two ways that will show us the kind of growth in the field, the growth ready for harvest, or the growth never to be gathered up by gospel laborers. The first way is this. The first way in which this kind of vegetation is recognized is that it's the kind of vegetation that receives the word of the gospel in faith. Fruit awaiting harvest is fruit that hears the gospel of grace, becomes poignantly aware of its sinfulness, its inborn passion for its own name at the the expense of the name of Christ. And when this person hears the gospel preached by the laborer, the ripeness of the harvest is made known. They receive the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace. They say yes to that message. That's the first way that the vegetation is recognized. And the second way is this, that he or she rejects the gospel of grace. Jesus in no way encourages a laborer to come to the conclusion on their own about the vegetation without going into the field and attempting to harvest. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus doesn't allow us to assume that. He sends us into the field and commands us to attempt to harvest. This is what I want you to hear very clearly. Jesus never gives the laborer permission to burn down a bad field. He never gives us permission to burn down a bad field. If you look in Luke 9.54, the disciples actually wanted to do this. They wanted to call down destruction upon a Samaritan village filled with foreigners. 
But Jesus has the authority to call down destruction even on their own ethnic group, their own home city, if they reject the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we can philosophize and conjecture all we want regarding the eternal destiny of those who have not listened to the gospel that we have proclaimed to them. But so long as God gives them life on earth, we must always hold out the gospel of our Jesus. As long as God gives them life on earth, we must always hold out this gospel in the hope that they may be one day, perhaps like the thief on the cross, who in God's timing waited for his very last day on earth before receiving the gospel in faith. A man who looked like unripe vegetation his entire life, and he ripened on his last day. Hallelujah. Make no mistake about it. There is but one means that God uses to reclaim His world. It is the message of the gospel. Now, what will mark the ministry of our church, Faith Presbyterian Church? Will it be a singular, urgent, even dangerous focus upon the message of the gospel, or will it be something else? May it be the wonderful grace of God to rescue sinners through the cross of Jesus. There is but one way that God uses to reclaim His world, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, and let's confess faith together. Please pray with me. Our Father, thank You for in Your wisdom saving us in this way. There is a foolishness about it, Father. We are called to go into a dangerous setting to have but one urgent necessity to be utterly vulnerable and to have a boldness that we don't actually have. To proclaim words? To proclaim words? It's sheer foolishness, Father. And it was Your wisdom and Your glory to draw people to Yourself through the foolishness of a message proclaimed. Father, keep us safe. Protect us. Keep us undistracted. Remove from us worship of material possessions, worship of status and reputation. And give us boldness as You lead us into the nations proclaiming this one message. We ask that You would do this by Your power for the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.